0: So Brexit, how and why did we get here? Well, there's a very simple answer to the question, and that is that Brexit seemed to offer all things to all people. It could be whatever people wanted it to be. Everything from an opportunity for Britain to batten down the hatches, creating some idealised little England, to unleashing the country from Europe and embracing global forces beyond. The difficulty going ahead, of course, is that you can't please all the people all the time. It's impossible to reconcile the intentions of everyone who voted Brexit. And that means that far from bringing unity, Brexit will instead bring a lot of disappointed voters down the road. Voters who feel that they've been betrayed and that their democratic will was not listened to, ultimately undermining democracy. And that's something that worries me more than it does um, the economy. But for a much longer answer to the question of how and why did we get here, I want to turn back the clock two centuries to the early 19th century. Now, this was a transformative period of not only Britain's history, one in which the roots of today can be found, but a transformative period for the world as a whole. It's a period commonly seen by historians as sparking the modern world, marking the start of the sustained economic progress that we've now witnessed for some 200 years, something which represented a big break to the relative stagnation experienced for millennia beforehand. And this period is the British Industrial Revolution. And here I want you to think Charles Dickens and all of his great novels, Steam Trains, children down coal mines and up chimneys, and feisty cotton factory girls of the kind that featured in the Channel 4 series, The Mill. Now, until the Industrial Revolution, Britain was a backwater. It was a backwater both to Europe and to the world. And all that changed in the 19th century, when the development of industry, and then a little later on, the financial sector moved Britain's centre stage and Britain's international openness was absolutely central to this. In fact, by 1870, Britain was exporting and importing the equivalent of 43% of its output. Now, not only was Britain's economy developing, but by the latter half of the 19th century, Britain was both engineering and funding economic development across the globe. The new technologies of the Industrial Revolution, particularly the steam engine, led to the development of steamships and railways that literally made the world smaller and flatter. And by providing funding for railways and ports that connected vast continents, Britain helped to bring about what's commonly thought to be the first big period of globalization in the latter part of the 19th century. Now Britain wasn't only an outward looking economy, selling its goods across the world, it helped to lead the way globally. Whilst globalisation is often associated with the US, it was actually in Britain that the free trade movement can be born with its roots in the Industrial Revolution and Britain's openness at the time. Now what's interesting in comparison with the modern day is that this international openness wasn't being driven by rich elites, by big landowners, um, by the establishment, or by big business. It was instead being driven by the working classes and the new aspiring entrepreneurs, the new industrialists that were challenging the established elites. These two groups wanted access to cheaper raw materials, cheaper imports more generally, bigger markets, greater opportunities to grow their business, and greater opportunities to create jobs. Now, since those days of the Industrial Revolution, Britain has grown increasingly prosperous. Life expectancy has more than doubled from a mere 41 years old at birth during the time of the Industrial Revolution. It's no longer a fact of life that each family will witness the death of an infant. We have more leisure time, believe it or not. not sure I believe that. Um, Along with access to goods that we'd never have before dreamt of. But as a society, we've also grown richer. We're much more cosmopolitan. There are fewer barriers to women achieving And same-sex couples no longer have to face the wrath of the law. We're much more diverse, and I like to think we value freedom of individuals to be themselves, unrestricted by their background, their country of origin, their gender, or their race. But despite having come a long way over the last two centuries, it's clear that economic progress brings change. And this change can be disruptive and even threatening. It can easily leave people feeling that things around them are moving so quickly that they can't keep up. It can leave people literally feeling out of control. And here I draw attention to three very different groups who I think feel that progress has come at a price. Firstly, and after the industrialization of the 19th century, we've had the spectre of deindustrialization in the 20th century. And that opened up a north-south divide. This really began after World War I, but reached dramatic proportions in the 1970s and 1980s. And with that, for many parts of the country, the tables have turned dramatically. So during the Industrial Revolution, it was London that was at risk of being left behind. Um, Cities like Manchester, where I was born, were centers of dynamism and growth. And in the 20th century, that's reversed, leaving many people outside of hotspots like London, and particularly those outside of the financial and educated elites, feeling left behind and forgotten about, despite having been so intruma- instrumental to Britain's longer term growth with its roots in the Industrial Revolution. And this first group of um, Brexiteers is very much reflected in the findings of the Legatum Institute UK Prosperity Index published last week, that measured prosperity not just on economic terms but on um, social terms, Um, looked at 389 different areas in the UK, and found a strong correlation between how prosperous a region is and the proportion of people that voted to remain. And it's this first of our three groups of discontents that we tend to find talked about in the press. Commentators such as Owen Jones of The Guardian put Brexit down to a full-scale, what he called, working-class revolt. And others have talked about it being a wake-up call to the metropolitan elites. A wake-up call to take note of what economists refer to as the losers of globalization, the people that have lost out from globalization. Though in reality, it's not just globalisation that's behind the longer-term deindustrialization that shifted the fortunes of the North and South. There are also major long-term factors, such as the way in which our tastes and consumption habits have changed as the economy has advanced and developed. And there are also short-term factors, such as the austerity that followed the global financial crisis of 2008. Um, And a recent paper published, I think just last week, Becker, Fetzer and Novi titled Who Voted for Brexit found that a modest reduction in fiscal cuts over the last few years would have swayed the outcome of the referendum. So that's our first group of Brexiteers, but that first group, and ones we could say who are worried about regional inequality, public services and jobs, can't explain all of the Brexit vote. So, that brings me to a second group of discontents um, I have in mind. Um, And these are people that I'd characterize as being concerned about society. Now, the amount of social change that we've witnessed over the past hundred or more years has certainly been dramatic, and for many of us, this has been good news. Women like me have certainly benefited, as have single-sex couples and ethnic minorities. But in sharp contrast to that, others feel that society and that the family has disintegrated, that no longer can we leave our front doors open, no longer can we rely on neighbors in times of need, no longer do we regularly get together at the village fete, and that no longer are children as well-behaved as they used to be. And for these people, these people concerned about society and family disintegrating The past is very much something viewed through rose-tinted spectacles and is, as a result, a standard against which the present can never measure up. For these people, the clock needs to be turned backwards. Now as Lord Ashcroft's polls have revealed, capitalism, interestingly, is the one thing that least, not most, divides referendum voters you find very little difference between Leave and Remain voters in terms of their views of capitalism, consistent with the clear fact that it wasn't just deprived northern neighborhoods that voted Brexit, but also some more comfortable, more southern neighborhoods. Instead, the big difference can be found in terms of views about whether things like the internet, feminism, and concern for the environment are positive or negatives. So of those who think feminism is bad, 74% are Leave voters. Of those who think the internet is bad, 71% are Leave voters. And of those who think the Green Movement is bad, 78% are Leave voters. Now, according to Eric Kaufman, Professor of Politics at Birkbeck, it's therefore wrong to characterise Leave supporters as the, quote, left behind. Many are just generally what we might call socially conservative with a small c. Then in addition to that, there's a third quite different category of Brexiteer, the followers of people like Boris Johnson and Dan Hannan and thinkers such as Andrew Lillicoe. And these are the people who see leaving the EU as an opportunity to carve out a more internationalist and more market-oriented role for Britain with less state interventionism. Now this isn't quite the future that our first category of Brexiteers imagine. This is the group who feel that the state, whether that based in London or in Brussels, has overreached itself. They point out that whilst the market has expanded over the last 200 years, so too has government. In 1930, no European state spent more than about 3% of its output on social spending, including things like benefits, that's 1930. By 1990, the average Western government was spending about 20% of its output on social transfer, social spending, and now um, government represents about 42% of output in the average OECD country, 44% in the UK. So many of these people point out that whilst the market has developed and advanced over the past 200 years since the Industrial Revolution, so has government and something needs to be done about that. For these people, leaving the European Union is an opportunity to continue the work of Margaret Thatcher. To them, Europe means more state control, more red tape and regulations, and risks impinging on our personal freedom and our need to take responsibility for our own lives. So in summary, whilst Britain has made significant economic and social progress since the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, The inevitable change that's come alongside has left many feeling out of control, albeit in rather different ways, whether it's industry crumbling around them, the view that society is getting out of control, or that government is growing uncontrollably. All three groups believe that leaving the European Union is a chance to make things better. What's unusual is that these three groups wouldn't normally be politically aligned. Brexit has led disparate people to vote for what they presume is the same thing when in reality their concerns and their hopes for the future couldn't be more different. And that's what I meant when I said at the beginning that Brexit has effectively promised all things to all people and in a way that can only bring disappointment and disillusionment ahead. At the end of the day... Rapid economic and social progress of the kind we've seen these last two centuries will bring challenges and it will bring disruptions. But the EU is not the central cause of those problems. And since it is not the central cause, neither will leaving the EU provide a solution. Now, I began my talk in the Industrial Revolution in Britain 200 years ago. It was a period built on cloth production. Whoever says industrial revolution says cotton, said one famous historian. Britain literally clothed the world. However, through the promises they have been made, the British public will soon find that they've been sold the emperor's new clothes. Britain has literally stripped itself naked, leaving our economy, our society, and our democracy exposed. And at a time when the global economy faces numerous challenges, a time at which we should be banding together with other countries and not seeking to go it alone, Britain has left itself naked in its dealings with the rest of the world. Thank you.